I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Cambridge EcoMask tipped to win architecture's highest accolade, the Sterling Prize. A massive shakeup in architectural education. City of London vetoes new skyscraper next to listed synagogue. Questions raised over an allegedly unfair estate demolition ballot. Iconic post-war housing set to be flattened in massive Lambeth redevelopment. And the life and legacy of the late, great Owen Luder. My name is Finn Harper. I'm an architecture critic and I'm covering for Poppy, Merlin and Zoe, who are all on well-deserved holidays. In their absence, I will be bringing you a roundup of this week's top London architecture news. Welcome to the Lundown. My guest this week is Siraj Mitha. Siraj is Accelerate's head. It's the only UK free year-long design and mentoring course supporting young people from underrepresented backgrounds to pursue careers in city-making professions. Siraj, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. So tonight is the 2021 Sterling Prize, and it will be awarded in a ceremony in Coventry Cathedral. So the question on everyone's lips, of course, is who will emerge triumphant from this year's exceptionally strong shortlist? Cambridge Central Mosque by Mark's Barfield Architects is currently the bookie's favourite to receive the prize, with odds of 9 to 4, though these are of course the same bookmakers who gave assemble odds of something like 200 to 1 against on winning the Turner Prize, so perhaps we shouldn't get too excited about their predictions. Nonetheless, the Sterling Prize will be broadcast live on the BBC and covered by the AJ, and it is awarded to the architects of the building that the jury feels has made the greatest contribution to the evolution of architecture in the past year. For many, it's effectively the best British Building of the Year award, and the choice of winner is often interpreted as a kind of litmus test for the taste, values and abilities of the British architecture world. Despite early odds favouring Carmody Grawk's Windermere Jetty Museum, the Cambridge Mosque is now tipped to take the top prize tonight. Windermere is slated as the second most likely to win, followed by 15 Clerkenwell Close by Amin Taha and the Tintagel Footbridge in joint third place. Bringing up the rear are the Kingston Townhouse by Grafton Architects of Dublin, followed by some key worker housing in Cambridge by Stanton Williams, where Siraj used to work, in fact. So, Siraj, what do you make of the Sterling Price shortlist? Is your money on Cambridge Central Mosque? Um, I'm, I'm not a betting man as such, but there are a few things I like about this building, for sure. The, the central spe- prayer spaces seem to have quite a careful distribution of natural light, considered, calculated, like an, like an art gallery. The result is this calming atmosphere. You know, the mosques I've visited in the past have all been quite different in scale and appearance, but this they have in common. They're all very calming spaces to be in. And 
at least in my experience. And I think it's good that this is somehow captured by the architecture. You know, the building's sustainable performance is obviously quite impressive as well. The use of timber structure expressed quite flamboyantly, the recycling of rainwater used elsewhere in the building. Its interiors, you know, there's a nice balance between quite stark minimal articulation and subtle decorative references to is Islamic ornament. What would be my first choice? Uh, maybe this. I, I quite like Grafton's uh, Kingston townhouse building, but that's partly that's partly because I studied in Kingston. I remember how rubbish the previous building was. <laughs> I, I quite like this idea that the building is a, a mediation between the university and the town around it, you know, like a real municipal building. Also, I think that, you know, the symbolism of a mosque winning the prize is quite significant as well. This is compounded by the fact that the Sterling Prize has never been given to a religious building before. Um, I think if it won, it would be some sort of affirmation to many that Muslim culture is part of British culture, which is a nice sentiment. Yeah, it would certainly um, send a message, wouldn't it? But let, let's let's talk about Cambridge, because it's interesting that there's two projects on the shortlist from that city, which is, you know, not a huge city, um, why do you think Cambridge is proving such a, a, a strong rival to the capital and to other large British cities in terms of commissioning outstanding architecture? It's, it's clearly proving to be quite fertile ground for architects and, and has been for some time now. I think it's good that architectural discourse isn't entirely London-centric. Maybe it's something to do with the collegiate environment, which seems to generate quite interesting architectural responses. I'm thinking of 6A's Cowan Court 2016, you know, Newnham college by Walters and Cohen or Stanton Williams is uh, Emmanuel College which is on site now and of course their Sainsbury's lab which won back uh, won the prize back in 2012 maybe it's the rich history and prominence of the college as an institution yeah I, I can totally see that you know you have this sort of amazing world leading client commissioning outstanding architecture for the university and maybe that kind of drags the standards up for the for the city as a whole a little bit like how um you know, in the great days of the, the LL, LCC or the GLC, um, uh, those public sector clients commissioning great housing meant that the private sector had to kind of compete uh, by providing really outstanding uh, architecture as well. Mm. Um, but, you know, in, in terms of kind of dragging standards up, what do you think about the Sterling Prize yeah. itself and, and the kind of role that it plays in the built environment industries? Um does it drag standards up? Is who wins really that relevant when we think about the kind of day-to-day -day economic and ecological struggles that ordinary people are facing in our cities? Is it just a prize for architects or, or does it have a wider social role? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I mean, I, I think it's great that the only building with a timber structure has been tipped to win. And with all its other sort of sustainable achievements, it's great that this is being recognised. And you'd hope that it inspires more faith and exploration in, in sustain, into sustainable timber construction in the future. I don't think you can really detach the symbolic significance of the winner of this prize and, and how it reflects on architecture and society as a whole. You know, at best, the Sterling Prize reflects the issues we should be concerned with, where we should be placing our attention with regards to the built environment, what we should aspire to. I'm thinking of the recent, you know, Mikhail Rich's, Kathy Hawley's Goldsmith Street Council housing in Norwich, which was a fantastic scheme with a very clear message set against the backdrop of the UK's housing crisis. The message being that, you know, when done with love and care and architects and clients who recognise its capacity and importance, council housing can return to being the very pinnacle of architecture in this country. And I think it's winning the Sterling Prize is 
somehow a validation of this, or at least a recognition of the current climate and the challenges that architects have been faced with. At its worst, uh, it's a self-serving exercise that results in quite closed-off architectural backpatting and serves as a reminder that the things you believe to be important within the profession are not shared by the judges awarding this coveted prize. Without wanting to name any names, there are definitely a few examples. You, you, you mentioned in your introduction that the Sterling Prize is given to the greatest contribution to the evolution of architecture in the past year. I think the key word there, you know, is evolution and actually perhaps awarding the prize to a mosque probably does show a type of evolution, perhaps not entirely an architectural one, but a social one as well. Our second story this morning is the huge and some might say long overdue shakeup of architectural education in the UK, specifically the infamous three part structure, which can take wannabe designers seven years or even longer to complete before they earn the right to call themselves architects in this country. It's a story that was picked up in the AJ after the Architects Registration Board, who are basically the kind of regulators of architects in Britain, announced hopes to switch over to a new system of accrediting designers launching an online survey to gather perspectives on their plans and saying the old three-part model created, quote, significant barriers to some people becoming architects. So at the moment, if you want to become an architect in the UK, you usually need to complete this three-part programme, which comprises uh, like a three-year bachelor's degree, then two years, ba- two years master's degree, uh, two years of working professional practice, and a final postgraduate diploma completed alongside practising. And it's only after successfully completing all those bits or equivalent qualifications that the designers of buildings can finally register themselves with the ARB and call themselves architects. It's quite a contentious system, but partly because many countries in the EU and elsewhere don't require such an arduous training regime before designers can formally adopt this title of architect. And also because since university tuition fees were introduced under the former Prime Minister Tony Blair and then trebled under the other former Prime Minister David Cameron, the full three part system has become incredibly expensive costing, by some estimates, over £100,000, including living expenses, for an aspiring architect to complete. So, Siraj, you have done all three parts of the traditional training and are a qualified architect. So do you agree with the ARB that the system needs changing? Was all that studying a waste of time? (laughs) Yeah, you know, long overdue. It's at least 13 years overdue, which is when I started my studies. So... uh... (laughs) Bittersweet, bit, bit, bittersweet for me, but perhaps very positive for everyone else moving forwards. Let's set aside the three-part system for a sec. I think any system that implicates such a network of people as this and comes against so much opposition as it has done in the past requires review. Yeah, The, the fact that this system has been in place for so long with very little change to its structure is quite concerning. You wonder how many other disciplines are running on a hugely inefficient system. It's true that there's a lot to learn as an architect and that learning process can take a long time. But I just find it weird that the system has taken this long to revise, especially since our, you know, as you say, our European neighbours have quite different educational systems and and produce fantastic results. So the, the ARB say that under the new system, quote, the most important factor will be what a newly qualified architect should be able to do and not how they got there, end quote. Um, so I, I might be reading 
between the lines a little too much here, but it, it sort of sounds to me like they might be hoping to make the profession more accessible to individuals for whom a kind of multi-part university education costing a hundred grand isn't an appealing prospect. Um, now, you run Accelerate, which is, is kind of Britain's leading uh, programme supporting young people from underrepresented and working class backgrounds to kind of get into architecture and, and other city making careers. Um, so what, in your view, needs to be done to make this course, this profession more accessible to young people from working class or underrepresented backgrounds? Well, this is it, isn't it? It's, you know, architecture in study and in practice comes with this plethora of obstacles, you know, the length of the course to qualification, the jaw-dropping cost of the whole thing. These are real obstacles which prevent people from working class and underrepresented backgrounds from even applying. And this is the reason uh, why Accelerate is so important. I mean, um, I run an outreach program called Accelerate, which focuses on encouraging 16 to 18-year-olds from historically underrepresented backgrounds to explore professions in the built environment. And that's as a means to widen opportunities and inevitably to democratise the processes concerning our built environment. And the reason Accelerate and programmes like it exist is because traditionally architecture is operated with this maximum exclusivity. You know, what needs to be done to make architecture more accessible? A lot, I think. We need universities to sign up. Among other things, we need universities to sign up and collaborate with outreach programmes like Accelerate to subsidise the insane price of education and offer reasonable access routes into and through their courses. Um, and and when I you know uh, I I suppose I end by saying rep- representation is also so incredibly important. You know, being able to see yourself and people like you in places you'd like to go. We need we need people from underrepresented backgrounds in positions of authority, not just to take these courses or be architects, but positions of actual authority with decision making power. You know, tutors, heads of department, heads of schools, so that processes moving forward aren't being decided entirely by one very small, very specific pool of people. And, you know, there's a lot of work to be done to be done here. Personally, I welcome a change to the architectural education system in this country, which frankly has felt for a long time quite archaic. So every week, Zoe or Merlin would take a break in the show at this point to turn to you, the listeners, and ask for your support. Open City is dedicated to making London and its architecture more open, accessible and equitable. And we we do that by creating amazing free programmes like this show, like the training courses that Siraj has just been talking about, like the Open House Festival, which in a typical year gives about 250,000 ordinary people free access to extraordinary spaces that they're normally locked out of. We run that festival for free, just like we make this show available for free, because we believe that everyone regardless of wealth, deserves to be able to learn about and have a voice in shaping their built environment. But here's the thing. That free model only works if those who have a few quid to spare at the end of the month are generous enough to donate some of that back so that we can continue to make shows like The Lundown and festivals like Open House free for those who can't afford to contribute themselves. Now, at the moment... Only about 0.3% of people who come to Open House Festival donate anything to support its running costs, which is quite a small percentage. If we could get that up to just 1%, it would completely transform the sustainability and impact of our work in making London's architecture more open and more accessible to everyone else. So here's my big ask for this week. If you enjoy Open House Festival or are a regular listener to this show and appreciate the work we do here, please today, today, 
sign up to donate the equivalent of the price of one flat white coffee a month to support Open City. If everyone listening to my voice right now did that, we would never need to ask for support on this show again. It would it would change the game overnight. So that's the ask. One flat white a month so that we can keep making this banging show and keep staging the Open House Festival and keep creating educational programmes like Accelerate. Go to open-city.org.uk slash flat white, all one word. I'll put the link in the show notes as well. And hey, if a flat white a month is too much for you right now, don't worry. I totally get that. I have been there too. I, I will never forget the first time I felt secure enough in my personal finances to buy a coffee from a posh coffee shop. It is a big deal and we totally get that. Instead, though, please do us a different favour and just spread the word about the show. Tweet about it, post about it on Instagram, send an email to your mum, send an email to your kids. I tell you what, what would really help is if you emailed your office manager and got them to email it around the whole staff because the more people we can reach with this show, the more sustainable the show becomes. Let's get more people talking about the big issues facing architecture in the built environment, because that is the way that we're going to shift the dial on public debate around the city in this country. Right, I'm done. OpenCity.org.uk slash flat white to support our work with one coffee a month if you can, or share the link with everybody you know. Thank you. Our third story is the news that a major high-rise development has, in a shock move, been blocked by the City of London over heritage concerns. The City's planning committee, famed for its generally pro-development stance, voted to reject proposals by architects Stiff and Trevilian for a new skyscraper due to fears it will overshadow the Square Mile's 320-year-old Bevis Marks Synagogue. The 48-storey tower was planned to stand next to Norman Foster's Gherkin and was recommended for approval by the city's planning officers. However, a lengthy planning committee meeting ended with local councillors voting 14-7 to 7 against the tower. The Bevismark Synagogue community led a campaign against the tower scheme which saw more than a 1,000 planning objections lodged. And speaking at the committee meeting, Shalom Morris, chief rabbi, said that the development would block views of the sky important to some Jewish rituals and diminish light into the building. This all comes at the same time as it has emerged that the final decision over whether Norman Foster's contentious tulip tower can go ahead has been delayed. The tall and skinny skyscraper was originally approved by the city's planning committee two years ago, but was then blocked by London Mayor Sadiq Khan after a public outcry. The planning inspectorate was due to announce a final decision on the tulip last month. The ruling would have been made by the former housing secretary Robert Jenerick, but will now be made by the new housing secretary Michael Gove at a yet undecided date. So, Siraj, what is this one about? The City of London Planning Committee is often thought of as being this kind of very, very pro-development body, as we have discussed on the London in the past. Even the pandemic, you know, really didn't seem to slow the tide of new skyscrapers coming forward in the city. So what does this rejection of the Stiff and Trevilian scheme say about the committee's changing attitudes? Is this just a one-off? It's interesting, certainly. I think for a long time, it seemed like you get, uh, you could build anything in the city if there was enough money behind it and perhaps you know perhaps that's still the case we have relatively few examples of buildings being blocked in the city in this case 
the planning officer's report noted that the application conflicted with the local plan and London plan due to non-compliance with protected views outlined in the London View management framework. But they went on to point out that virtually no major development proposal is in complete compliance with all policies. So it's, it's hard to say. I think it's good to hear that the rights of a historic religious venue adjacent to the proposal, such as this synagogue, have been defended and protected, but I find it hard to believe that other historic venues haven't been imposed upon by the plethora of tall buildings that have been built over the last decade. So perhaps there's more to it than that. If I had to guess, I would say that there probably is more to it than that, um, but we'd have to watch carefully to see what gets built in place of Stephen Trevelyan's proposal, because rest assured, something will get built there. It just might not be 48 storeys tall. Look, we're gradually finding a, a bit more out about this new housing secretary, Michael Gove, and his views on architecture. If you had to guess, do you think Gove is going to approve or reject the Tulip scheme, this other enormous tower planned for the City of London? And what would that decision say about him either way? Mm, yeah, the, uh, the the stakes are obviously quite high for this one. You know, the Tulips architect, Norman Foster, who has a long track record of building high spec in the city, most famous to the general public, I think, for, uh, for 30 St. Mary's Axe or the Gherkin, as it's commonly known. But I think this is it, isn't it? This will be a clear deciding factor for Gove. He can either take the route of his not-so-beloved Prime Minister and welcome every bit of new development that comes his way with open arms and minimal scrutiny, or he can buck the trend and put his neck on the line and stand against this type of development. If I had to say, I think what's more realistic is that he'll try to kick the can down the road for as long as possible. (laughs) Well, time will tell. We will see. Our fourth story was covered in the AJ, and it is all to do with an allegedly unfair residence ballot, which could see a North London estate demolished. Last month, residents on the Love Lane estate in Tottenham voted narrowly in favour of a Lend-Lease and Haringey Council-backed redevelopment, with 55.7% of residents supporting the proposals. The High Road West project would involve the demolition of the 297 home estate to provide 2,500 homes, 500 of which will be council homes, as well as new offices, shops, leisure spaces and a new public square. The ballot, which is a requirement of the Greater London Authority, saw voter turnout of 67%, which is quite high, with 113 voting in favour and 90, 90 voting against. However, Damien Tisler, an independent tenant and leaseholder advisor for the estate, claimed there was evidence of irregularities in the ballot process. He said, quote, My concern is that what the council and Lendleys describe as community engagement was in effect a massive promotional campaign that used fairly aggressive marketing techniques, persistent telephone calls, unannounced visits, and so on, end quote. What is going on here? The mayor requires ballots like these to be used to to kind of get public consent, engage enthusiasm for big regeneration projects. Should councils be free to use taxpayers' money to campaign for their preferred outcome? Is the kind of promotional campaign described by Damien Tisler just a reasonable part of a democratic process, or do you think it borders on propaganda? Hmm. So this ballot policy was introduced by the mayor in July of 2018, And so far, all the ballots except one in Camden have led to a positive vote for regeneration and wide-scale demolition. I can't be the only one who thinks that seems quite fishy. The ballot system is obviously a well-intentioned step forwards uh, towards providing residents with more power in these processes. 
But if all of them but one has gone through as a yes, then that would mean these schemes are sponsored by the majority of residents in every instance, which I find quite hard to believe. But surely, Siraj, if you know, if you were in um, in a council working for a council and you had a, a brilliant idea to uh, introduce some new community facilities or build some new housing. Yeah, of course, you want to ballot the residents to see what they think. But why shouldn't you be able to go out and make the case for why you think this is such a good idea? If you've spent the time and the effort designing this kind of this amazing vision for the area, surely you should be able to, to put some some public resources into trying to persuade people that it is a good idea. Absolutely. Uh, you know, that's I think you're you, you are entirely right. You know, informing people of um, what's available to them is um, a completely necessary part of um, of the process, but I think you know, it's it's. I suppose it's my uh, my cynical view of how that message is being communicated, and is it being you know, is it is it this sort of is it being communicated as loudly as other options that are available to residents? Public consultation and engagement is is a joke, especially in large housing developments like this. It's just not taken seriously or as seriously as it should be. All too often, it's a tick box exercise which manifests itself as a page in an architect's design and access statement. You know, 2,500 new homes, of which 500 are council homes. Well, that sounds like a lot, but that's still only 20%. It wasn't that long ago that Sadiq Khan was advocating 35% for developments of this size. This is all juxtaposed with the news that in the last few weeks, Berliners have voted and won in a referendum to expropriate large landlords in an effort to control and reduce rents. You know, in total, 240,000 properties or 11% of all apartments, all apartments in Berlin would come under the terms of this initiative. The referendum isn't yet legally binding, but it is a landmark case and gives us some hope against what seems to be a completely uncontrollable and relentlessly aggressive housing market. It's surely a step forward towards something better, I think, and something I hope we in London will learn from. Let, let's stick with this this, this topic of, of uh, demolition, because our, our fifth story was broken by the AJ, and it's all, also all to do with demolition. So two irreplaceable post-war blocks are facing the wrecking ball as a result of plans by the architects AHMM to make way for a mixed-use development on the 2.2-hectare site behind St Thomas's Hospital. The massive proposals from developer Stanhope and site owner Guy's and St Thomas's Foundation feature four new buildings, a major refurbishment of an existing office block and new public spaces. The scheme proposes to demolish both the 1957 Canterbury House, designed by Leslie Creed, and the neighbouring 1964 Stangate House, designed by William Fowler Howlett. The Royal Steep Project, as it's called, will also spell the end for the Waterloo City Farms site, which has been for some years the home to sheep, goats, and AJ 40 under 40 architect practice, Field and Fowls. The proposals have been heavily criticised by the 20th Century Society, who say that, quote, irreplaceable heritage assets will be lost and perfectly good buildings wasted with serious environmental consequences. So, Siraj, let's get into it. There are there are some really good architects involved in this project. Uh, Henley Hale Brown, AHMM, Field and Fowls. Um, but what do you make of their proposals? Is it worth knocking down these two blocks to uh, to, to do the regeneration? Or could there be another way forward? What do I think of the proposals? They all seem quite well designed by some very talented architects, sure. 
None are more than 17 storeys, which I'm not even sure qualifies as a tall building in central London anymore. Um, their sleek visualizations all seem to suggest they come with improved public realm around them, but I still feel like this is once again avoiding the real challenge. You know, undoubtedly, this will be costly to the environment. And one hopes the architects and contractors make, are making every effort to reduce the impact. So things like you know, high percentage GGBS in, in structural concrete, natural ventilation systems, all of that. It's It's been mentioned before on this podcast that the embodied carbon is a significant factor that isn't given enough consideration when making these decisions. You know, cement alone causes 8% of global emissions. Surely these facts should carry more influence when deciding whether to scrap a concrete framed building in perfectly good condition for something quite similar. You know, a brief look at the public consultation slides for Royal Street, which are, which are accessible for all to see online, show a list of fairly ambiguous claims related to sustainability. Things like build in resilience to, ch to a changing climate, enhance biodiversity and connect to nature, be a leading part of the circular economy. You know, I'm sure some of these things are somehow reflected in the architecture, but it could also be yet another tick box exercise to satisfy concerns of the moment. Yeah, absolutely. It, it, it does feel like given there are two really rather good <laughs> blocks on the site already, could they not be incorporated in the, into the scheme in, in, in some way? There's, there's other land available on the site. Do we really need a kind of demolition led approach uh, to this one, regardless of, of uh, how high quality the, the new buildings that are being proposed might be, is it worth that demolition? Um, it's striking to me that the, the landowner in this case is um, Guy's and St Thomas's Foundation, who are a charitable trust linked to those two NHS hospitals of the same name. And they use their resources in part to kind of pump money into the NHS, our, our, our national health care. So in the last financial year, um, the Guys and St Thomas's Foundation spent £10.9 million on NHS patients and staff, for example. And, you know, sh should we be worried that hospitals are starting to rely on the revenue from big property developments like this in order to raise the funds to support healthcare? Surely healthcare should be funded by taxpayers, not through property development. I mean, perhaps I'm being naive but surely money going into the NHS at this point in time is a positive thing as long as it doesn't come with any nasty strings attached I, I would be more concerned if the figure was larger than 10.9 million and that's not to say that this isn't a lot of money but perhaps but perhaps not enough to carry a huge amount of influence finally in sad news our, our last story of this morning the remarkable British architect Owen Luder has died aged 93 Obituaries to Luda have run in the AJ, in BD and the Telegraph newspaper. Once dubbed Britain's unluckiest architect, Luda outlived several of his striking 1960s and 1970s concrete buildings, including the Tricorn Centre in Portsmouth, the Dunstan Rocket and Trinity Square in Gateshead, whose multi-storey car park featured in the Michael Caine film Get Carter. Luda's Tricorn Centre, a former shopping centre, car park and nightclub in Portsmouth, was demolished in 2004 decision decried by many, including the writer and critic Jonathan Meads, who said, quote, you don't go knocking down Stonehenge or Lincoln Cathedral. I think buildings like the Tricorn were as good as that. They were great monuments of an age. But despite the demolitions, Luda's legacy remains an inspiring one. 
He was actually president of the RIBA twice, overseeing during his tenure the launch of the first ever Sterling Prize, which we opened our show with, and many of his projects continue to thrive today. Listeners to The London should visit the 1963 Eros House in Lewisham by Luda, which, to be honest, has suffered a a pretty clumsy external cladding job, but still retains a very striking glass and concrete stairwell. And also maybe visit his practice's 1970 Consort House on Queensway uh, in the city of Westminster, which is a kind of large brick-built scheme, uh, really infused with Luda's flair for enlivening these, these, these vast blocks with deeply articulated facades and pronounced balconies. So, Siraj, to conclude today's show, Luda has left quite a legacy marked both by some tragedy and some triumph. What do you think we can learn from the work of Owen Luda today? I think we can learn a lot and, and not least how to pull off a, a, a bow tie. I, I think uh, having the tenacity to propose something controversial to contemporary tastes is exactly how tastes get changed. He was a master of forming concrete, which can clearly be seen from the portfolio of his work and the projects that you mentioned. You know, I, I live in Lewisham and Eros House is still quite striking, despite its uh, extremely clumsy external recladding. Um, This guy was practicing during an incredibly exciting time in British architecture in the 60s when new and daring solutions were being proposed and built. I think that for those of us practicing today, we should remember that that when remembering Luda. A legacy of tragedy and triumph is what the papers say. I would say a legacy of courage and conviction. Siraj, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the London this week. Where can listeners follow your work at Accelerate and your, your other projects? Yeah, check us out, um, uh, the Accelerate Instagram. We're, you know, there are links on the uh, Open City webpage. Um, you know, follow us and, and please join in if, you, if it takes your interest. What's the handle for the Accelerate Instagram account? It's Open City Accelerate. Fantastic. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me. You've been listening to The London a show bringing you the big stories in architecture and the built environment in London each week, created by Open City. If you want to know more about any of the stories we've discussed tonight, we recommend subscribing to The Architect's Journal, which has covered all these issues in depth and many more too. You can tweet at The London using the hashtag LNDDWN or at OpenCityLondon. Our theme music is by Chris Zabriskie. Open City is a charity dedicated to making London and its architecture more open, accessible and equitable. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. 
Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.